this has been in our mind forever uh, because of the, our connection with the Black Hawk Film Library. And uh, obviously, Black Hawk was the home of Lauren and Hardy, among other things. So uh, we've, we've been thinking of doing this for years. We've been collecting, assembling, locating material all over the world for, well, for, for the last 35 years. And now, you know, the time had come. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Do you know how to restore and preserve classic comedy? No, but hum a few bars and I'll fake it. We talked to Serge Bromberg about the first set in a series devoted to Laurel and Hardy's growth as a comedy duo. And to Josh Mills about the writings of Ernie Kovacs, collected in a new book. A duck and a rabbi walk into a bar. No, wait, that's not what I was going to say. What I meant to say was, subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. To be frank, wait, who's Frank? Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy first made a movie together, The Lucky Dog, in 1921. They worked prolifically after that, but separately. It wasn't until 1927 that they started being regularly teamed up, and it took a few films into that before they were Laurel and Hardy as we know them. Though it was easy to see this process of developing comic genius back in 16mm days, for most of the home video era their silent work has been a bit hard to see, unless you happen to grab the few discs put out 20-some years ago as the lost films of Laurel and Hardy. Well, they weren't actually lost then, but the people who owned the rights seemed to be doing their best to fulfill that title through neglect. But now Lobster Films and Flickr Alley come to the rescue with the first volume of what will be an annual series for the next few years, Laurel and Hardy Year One, devoted to their silent film output from 1927. Meaning we finally get to see all 13 surviving films of their original partnership, plus some other things, in top quality editions. It's due out on August 15th, and I spoke with Serge Bromberg of Lobster about what went into bringing back year one of the greatest comedy duo of all time. How are you? I'm fine. Um, uh, I'm doing okay. We're in the last rush uh, before the printing. Uh, we are checking and checking and checking again the booklet, and uh, everything will be fine in the end, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right well yeah. tell me tell me about this project uh i assume partly driven by waiting for copyright to expire uh well yes 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 and no uh it actually uh it opened it opened a, a possibility 
But actually, this has been in our mind forever uh, because of the, our connection with the Black Hawk Film Library. And uh, obviously, Black Hawk was the home of Lauren and Hardy, among other things. So uh, we've, we've been thinking of doing this for years. We've been collecting, assembling, locating material all over the world for, well, for, for the last 35 years. And, uh, and, uh, and now, you know, the time had come. Uh, and so we started this in the 2020, uh, and, uh, uh, I, we had a small network of collectors that we call them the usual suspects <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, all the names, I guess. And, uh, and, uh, we would share, uh, you know, enthusiasm, passion, uh, information, documents, uh, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, it, it it's like, you know, French mayonnaise. Uh, all of a sudden, things went came together, and <laughs> and the project actually started. Uh, we started uh, working on one film, then another, and it's always the same uh, issue. You know, you you do what you think is right and what you think is the best, and of course, once you've completed the work, then another information arrives that basically contradicts everything you've done before, <laughs> and you have to do it all over again. Uh, that's part of the magic. One of the rules of uh, a restoration is once you've struggled uh, to reconstruct the film from 20 different prints around the world, I mean, the day your work is over, you realize that your neighbor had the camera negative complete <laughs> on the, the table of his kitchen. And it always happens. You, you cannot imagine. Uh, there's, a, there's another rule, which is that uh, uh, whatever you, how, how much you, you check, uh, thing at the end of the day there's always a typo in the title i mean sure. you can check 500 times and so uh this is about this is about what happened you know we we started for a film like with love and hisses for example we started with 16 then part 35 a library of congress then all of a sudden the surprise duke negative arrives in from uh, uh, Europe, then we restore that Duke negative after, of course, long negotiations and, and scanning in 4K, so enormous amount of work. And guess what? Once this was over, a new element arrives that is better than the 35-year nitrate Duke neg. So hmm. we had to do it here again uh, all over. And that's normal. We don't complain about it. It seems that it's the, the standard rule of uh, film restoration. You, you, you are academic. Uh, until a certain point, and then once you've reached that point, anything can happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the worst being that, of course, the, the magic print that changes the scope of the restoration happens after the Blu-ray is published, right. <laughs> which is still a possibility. You know, there's a, there, there, uh, It is possible that at some point someone calls and says, oh, I have a print of Flying Elephant with a scene that is nowhere else to be seen, and and I will have no other way than saying sorry <laughs> yeah. and, and of course to upgrade for a further uh, possible publication mm. yeah so um this is uh the set is devoted to 1927 uh yes. not not the first films that laurel and hardy made together but when they're first really put together as a team well no 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 we we extend to the first films they made together okay. uh, we have uh, uh 45 minutes from hollywood we have uh, the lucky dog a new restoration with uh one minute unseen before that no one has ever seen uh and uh or maybe you have seen it but uh it's a clip that has been floating around 
and uh, that we a collector had that, and we were very fortunate that he gave us access so that we could include that in the final restoration. But that was three weeks ago. <laughs> just, just yesterday, you know, right. and then of course the, the music track was done, uh, everything was delivered, and we have to do it all over again. <laughs> okay, that's part of uh, the magic. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so some even earlier than 1927 films, but the bulk of it is is this 1927 run. Is the complete 1927. Uh, with documents from earlier on. Uh, I mean, we've done our, our share of Laurel or Hardy with the uh, Library of Congress uh, Flickr Alley uh, Blu-ray set that we did to you two or three years ago. Right. So we, we are, we, we've, we've been very active in this. And it, it, it seems natural that after uh, uh, deciphering how the, the comic uh, genius and comic style of both actors uh, um, was built over the time separately uh, that in this set we see how they merge together and basically how they create the team. I mean, the first films with both of them have very little uh, to see with the team of, of actors. It's not the boys. You know, when you see the, the, the uh, flying elephants, they meet after a 16 minute of film where they are uh, in separate shots. Right. So, uh it takes time until we reach a do detective thing. And of course the last one published December 31st, 1927, the legendary battle of the century. Right. Right. Uh, mm. So for which I assume you, ha- you have access to the, the second reel as well. Well, not only do we have access, but we were the first ones to restore it. And we okay. premiered the film in 2015 in Telluride. Uh, we, it, it was a blast. I mean, I remember Brad Bird was there, and all the usual, uh, uh, you know, fans of of the boys were here. Those who were in Telluride, uh, and it was a smashing success. So at the time, it was restored in 2K. We made a new restoration 4K, but it's based on the same elements. Uh, we have a different, slightly different way of using the steels in the middle because, as you probably know, we're still missing about one minute. Uh, the Eugene Pallet insurance salesman uh, scene that doesn't seem to survive until next week, of course. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, uh, and uh, so we, we basically we have the same two steels uh, in, in our collections. We've had them all the time. So we phrase it a bit differently, but otherwise, of course, it's the same. The first really tinted amber as the nitrate was. Uh, which is a fascinating story. I mean, the, the nitrate of real one is almost as fascinating as the story of nitrate uh, of the 16 mil of real two. Uh, I mean, it was discovered by pure chance by Leonard Maltin at MoMA, who had not realized what they had. And and the reason it wasn't MoMA was su- surprising. It was not preserved by MoMA, apparently. It was sent to Black Hawk, which is how Black Hawk could use it. You know, in, uh, in the late 70s, Black Hawk released Real one plus the little Youngson clip of real two, and it came from that real one that was at MoMA. But before returning it to MoMA, Black Hawk went bankrupt, and uh, so the, the print was put in in boxes and ended up at the Library of Congress. And no one knew why the print was there. It's bizarre, you know. You have that unique material on the film that, uh, and at the time, had this nitrate de- decayed. The only thing that would have survived was would have been the uh, 16 mil Duke Meg of the Black Hawk release. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and then hats off. We still don't have yeah. hats off, but you've done. Oh, yeah, we have five prints. But, you know, uh, we try not to say it too loud. So please do not repeat it to anyone. We're comparing <laughs> the five prints in order to have the longest uh, version possible. Of course, there's no hats off. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's probably one of the, re- of the very unique cases in the history of cinema when we know that when we find hats off, because we'll find it one day, we will not be disappointed. Right. It will be fun. It will be hilarious. So uh, uh, we're waiting for that moment. Uh, I still haven't found the real reason why this one especially does not survive. Uh, there must be something somewhere. Uh, is it because they bought the rights of that script when they made Music Box and so they removed from circulation everything on Hats Off? I, I don't know. I mean, we have still in the... Uh, uh, Blu-ray that you will see with with huge promotional campaign. I mean, they 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 really did it super big. Uh, and nevertheless, there's not one animated frame of of hats off so far. Okay, but and, uh, yeah, but you do a little reconstruction to show. Yeah, well, there are many ways of doing the reconstruction. We're doing it our way, uh, and uh, but you know, it, it's nothing short of the original film. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we, we'd, we'd certainly would love to have it. I mean, there's many attempts of reconstruction on YouTube. You go and do hats off reconstruction and you'll find it. And they are all equally talented and, and devoted to the memory of the boys. Everyone wishes to, to have seen the, that film. So, you know, we, we're not redoing what two or three people have done already more extensively, but we, you know, with John Bengtson, we, we have made a, uh, comparison of the locations uh, today. We have Randy Scredvet, we did the, the extensive text, we have uh, uh, and commentary track. We have Dick Band, we made the, the history of, of uh, Black Hawk films and how Black Hawk ended up having all these elements in their hands. Uh, we have a little text that was actually removed at the end of the, uh, at the last minute. Uh, about where the elements come from and and where they went and where they were destroyed for some of them and so that's probably for the future uh, yeah. and and we have steels 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 and documents all over the place uh, plus a booklet I'm, I'm, uh, to tell you the truth I'm very very proud of the of, of the Blu-ray it's, I think it's one of the best things we've ever produced and and uh, Flickr is continuing his. Uh, their investment uh, uh, in the the boys and with such talent and involvement. And I'm really am proud. Nice. You shouldn't say that, but I, I... <laughs> you, you're allowed to say that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, the history of, of how these films survived. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, they were, were they easy to see back in the 30s and 40s? Were they still getting attention? No, probably not, because those films were silent. And just as any silent, there were attempts of turning the silent films into sound films. So, you know, adding a soundtrack and sound effects. And right. But it, it's not, you know, it, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, we have two, two uh, uh, prints uh, that come from that, uh, uh, those releases. One is uh, 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 Wild Sailors Love Girls, and the other one is uh, uh, Sleeping Wives. And uh, those two uh, are from 
nitrate dupe negatives, which were which were actually the nitrates used to make prints in the 30s. So we're not starting with prints. We're starting with the. We were fortunate to find the nitrate dupes that are still in existence. So we could use that. Uh, one of them has uh, the the area, the sound area cropped. So we're missing a little part on the left. Uh, but of course, it doesn't show. Very minor. And the other one, uh, skipping wise, is uh, adjusted. So basically, we're not missing anything in the frame. Uh, but you know, going for 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 prints, I mean, we we found fragments. I told you, of course, in England, we found in in Denmark. Uh, I mentioned uh, other countries, Poland, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, and actually MoMA's element on. Uh, uh, love them and weep uh, that we use for a few clips at the end of real one and beginning of real two is actually a nitrate that came from the Czech Republic. Hmm. Uh, so you know it's like a jigsaw puzzle, and and when you think about it, I mean, you, you, uh, let's take another example. It's very simple: putting pens on Philip. Putting pens on Philip was uh, printed by Youngs, Robert Youngson uh, to identify the clips that he wanted included in his future films. So. Uh, Youngson made a 16 mil print that ended up in the hands of John Marsalis, that's a little brother to the real two of Battle of the Century. So we have that print thanks to John, and uh, which has been fantastic, but he's always fantastic, so it's boring at the end. Right. You know, <laughs> great, great, great friend. And uh, so uh, we use that, but the print was done uh, with little defects. And a few years later, Blackhawk had the same negative in their hands, and they made not only a pr- not a print but a fine grain, which is sharper, which is printed more accurately. But the problem with that fine grain is double. First problem, uh, because Roach was supposed to deleonize the uh, credit, uh, Blackhawk was committed to remove the original titles and change them to new titles, which is the reason why. The Black Oak Prince didn't have the original title. It was a contractual commitment. But okay. also, when that that nitrate was in the hands of the, 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 the technic, technicians at Black Oak, they realized that it had started to decay. And when you watch Black Oak Prince of uh, putting pens on Philip, they are super sharp, but there are moments when you can see the, the image bubbling and then literally melting away, which shows that a few years later, it's quite likely that the film was, the negative was junked. Uh, so we, we shift constantly, although it doesn't show, between the print, when uh, the fine grain came from decayed fragments, or the fine grain, when the camera negative was still okay in 1964 or 65, when Black Hawk made their fine grain. So you see that kind of thing. It's not. It's very uh, 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 common that we have three, four, five, six elements from different uh, uh, sources, starting from the same nitrate base, but printed differently or printed at a different moment, giving different results. Uh, for let's take another example. Suppose you have someone who has the camera negative and makes a wet gate fine grain, which means it copies the film in, in, in a liquid gate, which theoretically removes most of the lines. Uh, it would be ideal, but sometimes there were defects uh, coming from the uh, wet gate uh, printing, like little bubbles 
or a lack of focus or diffraction of light. And when you have that, the, the end fine grain is not sharp or right. is not usable. But sometimes you would say, well, that's the best element I have. Suppose somebody else takes the same negative at the same time and makes a dry gate. So without the wet, without the liquid, all the lines will be there. So you would think, well, if all the lines are there, that's a major defect. This cannot be used. That's correct. In the 60s or 70s, this could not be used. But today with digital technologies, it's better to have a sharp image with a lot of little lines than an out-of-focus image without any line. Right. So the best element in 1964 would have been the wet gate. Today, the best element is the dry gate. And the only way to know which is which is to compare, which means you, you may use one element, but to be sure that's the good element, you have to bring in five, six, seven different elements and compare them shot by shot. That's what we call restoration. And, and, and believe me, it takes absolutely forever. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, so the films, I mean, did they just survive in all kinds of different places? Because I know there was there was another group or another owner who had the silence uh, for a time and yeah. did, did not take the greatest care of them. You want me to name names? <laughs> sure. uh, I will not. <laughs> okay. But, but yes. Uh, uh, Richard Feiner uh, managed to control the silent film. So at some point, the elements of the silent films were separated from the sound uh, material. The sound material ended up in the Library of Congress and went to UCLA. But those silent films, uh, there were not so many at the time. We're speaking in the end of the, the 70s or beginning of the 80s. Uh, uh, and at that moment, uh, the, uh, the maybe beginning of I don't I, I may not have the, the dates right. Uh, anyway, uh, at that time, uh, Finer didn't have all the material because many of the original elements had already decayed. Uh, and yes, he entrusted someone with, with all those elements. That someone took all the elements and put them in the in the house without uh, climate control, and and so. Basically, everything kind of melted away. Uh, Rob Stone, we all know, and is one of the most dedicated Harrods specialists, uh, remembers that he's the one who picked up some of the elements in, in that kitchen. And he remembers having, I think, the negatives of habeas corpus and Jordan Tutin that were solid like bricks. Right. And, and he, ju- he junked them himself. So that, that's, uh, that's, that, that's a tragedy uh but you know we're fortunate to have all those well first of all a friendship between archivists and collectors networks like internet so the information travels very fast i mean if i want to compare two images uh, i can ask someone at the other end of the world to take a little uh, you know with his phone a little photo and send it to me and i'll know right away if we're in neg a or neg b that kind of thing would have taken two or three weeks uh 30 years ago so we, we, we're fortunate to have that, and, and we managed and uh, struggle. And I think we succeeded in, in uh, getting all those 1927 films back. Uh, it will be less complicated uh, for 1928 and 1929, although there are issues 
also with those films. The main issue being that uh, some of the elements are incomplete from negative A and may be complete in negative B. So what do we preserve? Neg A, neg B, do we mix the two? It's kind of a usual uh, moral right or uh, integrity uh, issue that we all have to deal with when we do a restoration. Sure. Uh, but that, that's for next year. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't That's... don't repeat that. But of course, we've already started working on all those films. <laughs> right. Of, of right. course, and, uh, and they are, they are. Well, you know how good they are, and right. when you see them as as good as if they had been shot yesterday, they are even better. Yeah. No, I. You know, big business, of course, uh, is a much loved one. And yeah. whenever my kids would have some kid over who had never seen silent movies, I would always put that on first because it was just guaranteed that they yeah. would dissolve in laughter and, and be sold on the whole idea of watching old black and white movies without talking at that point. That, that's interesting you're, you're, you're pointing that because I've always wondered what would be the first film I would show to someone who doesn't know anything about silent films. Because obviously this is, the, this is where... Uh, uh, you know, you have a one chance to convince someone that <laughs> sure. silent films are, are so good. And yes, I mean, no doubt. Uh, I mean, you, you could show Battle of the Century. You could show Big Business. Uh, I mean, those, those are good. I'm sure. I mean, with Chapin, I'm sure you have one or two. And with Buster Keaton, you show one week and, and right. you're on the top of the world. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. Or um, the other one, I was, the other Keaton I would show to kids was uh usually the scarecrow because it has a dog in it and that always helps a film go over when they're uh, okay we will not stop comparing every single but i i love every single uh sure uh, short of buster keaton yeah but scarecrow is not the strongest not the I mean, strongest they, they, but, but uh, audience pleaser as you yeah. would call them yeah. probably yeah probably yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so um, versus that material, which was in sad shape, you just had collector prints from many different people? Mm, that- different different things. Well, first of all, we had access to all the Black Hawk library uh, elements, so that were all the preprints that were made, uh, so technical preservation elements that were made in the 60s and 70s. Uh, that, would, that included some surprises. For example, real two of uh, uh, flying elephants, uh, we have a complete dupe neg of real two of flying elephants, full aperture, absolutely stunning. We have no clue where it comes from. Uh, <laughs> and, and literally in all the papers, say we only have 16 mil. And so I checked the inventory at some point. I said, oh, well, it's not 16, it's 35. Let's pull it from the vault. It's, they are all at the academy. They pulled it from the vault. Said, wow, and then they, what a surprise. Not a clue where that could come from. Not a clue. Huh. Uh, uh, yeah, for, for, for Flying Elephants, we had a clip of nitrate original material from Jeff Joseph, uh, who had donated it to the uh, Packard uh, uh, Institute, Packard Humanity Institute at, at UCLA Film Archive. So uh, PHI was very, very gracious and gave us access to that material. You know, every archive kind of felt that it was the right moment. So, yes. Uh, uh, it, it also comes with the moment that where the films are public domain. I must remind you that a project like this costs a fortune. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and in the end, it's much better if we have a copyrighted film than if we have a public domain film. So public domain, in a way, could be regarded as an enemy, like 
a door opener that allows the project to exist. But at the time when the films are restored, I, I must tell you that those restorations are severely copyrighted and they are printed in and they are marked and everything. So if someone uses those versions, uh, it is an illegitimate use and it is not allowed. But of course, many people are going to try and there's the beginning of piracy and people will copy to internet archive and we will remove it and it'll come back and they will remove it again. It, it's tiring at the end of the day, you know, it's right. not our fault if those films fall in the public domain. We're happy it, it allowed the project to exist, but, um, uh, it's also some, it can also sometimes be a problem. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting question that was, coming up when copyright started moving forward in time again, you know, would it be good or bad for film restoration? And so far it seems like the answer is both in different cases. Um, sometimes it makes things accessible that have been under copyright before. And sometimes it just means that everybody and their dog is ripping it off. I mean, well, what's your feeling? My feeling is that it depends if the regular owner of the film is doing the effort of restoring the films and, and circulating it. Uh, if you take a, a, a film from, from, I don't know, Warner, and, uh, and uh, Warner has a, the, the camera negative, and they preserve it, and they put it on TCM, and they put it on Blu-ray and, and everything, and one day the film falls in the public domain. So that day, I think Warner is legitimate to continue to do so. And I do, do not see why anyone would try to compete with lousy 16 mil prints sure. and pretend restored and blah, blah, blah. Uh, what we do at Lobster is uh, restore films that other people have not restored properly or have not uh, circulated properly. And, and so basically we're freeing uh, some titles, not so many. We, we we do not have the deepest pockets in the world, but we're freeing some films and making them accessible in the best possible uh, resolution and restoration. That's all we do. We're not trying to compete with anyone, uh, but there are companies that would not even consider working on the film because it would say, well, pfft, not interesting. You know, we're working. To, we're working on a, something that will probably be a very big event. Uh, uh, it's a, a film that will premiere soon uh, from Eric von Stroheim film called Merry Go Round. So that film uh, was restored, was uh, uh, published and produced in 1923. Uh, nobody ever cared about that film ever, ever. Uh, and, and, and we focus deeply on that and, uh, we've invested a lot of, of time and money and we have a, a, a wonderful foundation that's following us, the, the Sunrise Foundation. And, and thanks to that, the film will be back. But without us, the film would simply not exist besides a, a, a crappy, uh, uh, reproduction on YouTube that you can hardly watch and even worse, hardly listen to. So that's, that's exactly what we do. We, we want to, the films that we love, we want to share them. That's where it starts. Uh, another part of it, of course, is uh, the audio that goes with them. I saw that you have a few examples of, I guess, French sound reissues, but mostly you've got yes. top, top drawer people doing new scores for these. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, the, the scores were used in, uh, in European re-releases. I don't know if they were used in the, in the US, uh, but they were the same score uh, for the whole uh, Europe, European countries. Uh, and, and, and Why Sail is Love Girl has a song even in it, huh. in French. That's very bizarre. Recorded in 1930. And of course, we restored that, those soundtracks. Uh, otherwise, yes, we, we use, uh, you would call them top of the shelf musicians. Uh, there are, uh, many, many musicians that would have been, uh, uh, possible choices to do this. Uh, but we, uh, had very little time to produce the final versions. And, um, and so we called our usual friends, uh, Neil Brand, Adol Sozin, uh, Antonio Coppola and, and a few others to to just compose uh, soundtracks and uh, and play them. They are piano only. They are very good, and it's better to have a piano only very good track than, than an orchestral terrible track. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and uh, some people say, oh, you should have organ. Oh, you should have a nocturne. Oh, you should have jazz music. Well, okay, we have that and. Uh, uh, maybe for 1928 we'll do uh, a difference. Uh, it's still being discussed. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm again, again, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy uh, with the final result. Uh, not, not to apologize on the music. I'm more than proud on the choices we made. But you know, the a film is a whole. It's a, it's a sensation. It's an image. It's music. It's a mood. Uh, with all that work that we've invested in in those versions, I mean. Truly, uh, you do. It's it's like a flying carpet. I mean, every film is twenty five minutes of pure magic, and right. you you cannot even analyze uh, whether oh the music is this, the image is that. No, it's just it's just wonderful films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything in particular that you found, uh, you know, working on the films this time? Anything new that you've thought about them as you were working with them? No, uh, we, we've realized how different the versions could be uh, because probably, you know, it, it's 1927 is very primitive and, and Roach was not uh, the, uh, the, the production that would take the best care of their elements. So uh, obviously there were elements, in, even in 35, where some shots would be missing. Would it be uh, um, censorship? I don't think so. Would it be just a tear in in an element and you remove the whole shot and, and continue to print? That's probably that. So by comparing 16 mil uh, elements through, that were printed at different stages and uh, 35 elements, uh, we realized that many, in many cases, we had to jump from one to the other, uh, which seldom shows, but it sometimes does. And... Uh, but that's the only way to have the the the, uh, the clips in 45 minutes from Hollywood. The Stan Laurel shots when he's in the bed with the mustache. Uh, some of them are of 35, absolutely sharp. But they were actually missing from the camera negative that we had in our hands. <laughs> uh, and and some of the shots by Laurel were not there anymore. What had they been removed by somebody who wanted to use them and didn't put them back, or we we don't know. There's another issue. Uh, which is, uh, we've been very surprised uh, uh, that nobody uh, knows, or maybe some people know, that uh, some uh, Laurent Hardy films were multi-tinted. Uh, 
uh, and uh, the, for example, um, Battle of the Century, real one is amber, real two is in black and white, and that's what it says on the on the script continuity. But for Love and Weep, for example, we have a complete uh, nitrate print uh, that is multi-tinted. So we, we, uh, we've, of course, retained the multi-tinting. Have you ever seen a Lauren Hardy that would go blue for night and amber for uh, uh, indoor and, and no. green? No. And, and that's how they were released. Uh, uh, there's another film, I can't remember which one, um, where, uh, yes, it's, uh, it's uh, Second Hundred Years. Second Hundred Years has multi-tinting. And, and, but, of course, all the elements we had were black and white. Uh, fortunately, we have the, the cutting continuity. And the cutting continuity says very precisely where the tinting starts. Like after that card, it becomes blue. Uh, and it, blue ends before that card or before that scene. So we, we have, of course, reproduced that tinting. You know, we, we, we're trying to get as close as possible to the original uh, uh, sure. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the history of Blackhawk, uh, I mean, they it basically wound up with you uh, from David Shepard, and he acquired it because he had worked there. And I don't know what what all. It's the the the. the uh, I will not go into too many details, sure. but uh, what happens is that. Blackhawk uh, went bankrupt because they were dealing with 16 mil material, right. and 16 mil, of course, was history uh, at the beginning of the 80s. So uh, Blackhawk went away. Uh, David Shepard was one of the vice presidents uh, still working there, uh, and uh, as I remember, Blackhawk was acquired by Republic Pictures because they were interested in their mailing list. Mostly, right. and uh, they uh, once they had uh, all the mailing list, they were not interested in that those mountains of uh, elements. Uh, and Shepard was there and wanted to get out of here. And he said, "Well, why don't I sign you a big check and I go away with the films and the and the licenses?" And that's what they both agreed on. You know, our uh, Republic Pictures had no clue the importance, the historical and cultural importance of all that stuff. All they could see was money and, and all David Shepard could see was the value of those films. Uh, he, he could see the, the, the money value, but he also saw the, of course, the cultural value. He was, yeah. uh, he was uh, if there was one film lover in the world, he's the one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, wasn't it, I mean, Republic Pictures at that point, wasn't it also like owned by blockbuster video or something like that yeah there were stories like this and the, and the brand black hawk films was owned by uh you hefner yeah. uh so you know it's, it's from playboy so right. at the at the end of the day uh we don't exactly know if i yes I mean, the history is described by dick ban in his essay in, in the booklet but uh not until the the, the very end uh but basically uh david shepherd is the one who managed to pull everything together and and give a new birth to blackhawk through dvd then through blu-ray yeah. and uh we're we're continuing the uh the uh experience and the magic uh with, with a little change i must admit that uh 
you probably many people have noticed uh, on some occasions we remove the Indian head okay. because uh, because of you know the uh, the the politics and everything sure. and yeah. cultural appropriation and everything, which of course has nothing to do with the, the original logo, but uh, uh, but uh, so we we're trying to adapt. Yeah, who need, who needs the trouble? Right, you've got your exactly. You're yeah, yeah, we good works yeah. in other ways. You don't need grief over that. Uh, we we have our little problems, as you know. So uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're doing our best. That's all yeah. I can say. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else about uh, this set or what we have to look forward to from uh, from lobster and from uh, well, from 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 Flickr uh, and Blackhawk. Uh, you you well you you. You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, <laughs> to paraphrase someone who made a film in 1927, also, yes. but that was speaking. Uh, yeah, well, you know, basically we're uh, launching many, many, many uh, new projects. I mentioned one with Merry Go Round, and there will be a few more. Uh, we just made a, a very important restoration that I will not mention. Uh, with the Museum of Modern Art that entrusted us with the restoration of uh, one of the most prestigious silent films. So, yeah, we're very, very uh, uh, proud at the moment. And uh, all I can say is that the future begins today, which is good news. Year One comes out on August 15th from Flickr Alley. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Don't you feel this has somewhat got the atmosphere of omnibus? Anyway, let me tell you what the Hungarian Alistair Cook is trying to say. He's just finished shooting. The crew is sitting around, figuring out the overtime, drinking and smoking tea, uh, drinking tea and smoking. This is a show that is being done purely for the people at home. The fact that you see Baggy Eyes sitting out there all alone doesn't mean that he's socially unacceptable, necessarily. It's just that we don't have a studio audience for this show. There are no laughs on soundtrack either. All in all, it's kind of an inanimate vacuum. Uh, incidentally, there's no little girl sitting on the shoulder. There's something wrong with your set. Ernie Kovacs was a comedy cult figure in the 50s and early 60s, who was fortunate that his cult often seemed to include programming executives for the networks. So when they needed someone to fill airtime, they would give him the time, then back out of the room quietly and leave him to do his thing. Which was mostly anarchic humor making fun of the conventions of television and playing with cameras to do weird things nobody else had thought of. But it wasn't only television for Ernie Kovacs. Despite being primarily a visual comedian, he also did radio and wrote pieces for magazines. His print work, and some of the detritus that washed up in his life, is the subject of a new book, Ernie and Kovacs Land, Writings, Drawings, and Photographs from Television's Original Genius, from Fantagraphics. It was put together by Ben Modell, hey, we know him, Pat Thomas, and not least, returning guest Josh Mills. 
Mills explained his personal connection to Ernie Kovacs when he was on Nitrateville Radio in 2019. So we started this time by asking him to quickly recap that for those of you who arrived late. And could you please sit down? People behind you can't see. I'm Josh Mills, and I run the estate of Ernie Kovacs and Edie Adams. My mom was Edie Adams, and uh, because of certain uh, issues when Ernie passed away, I am now the uh, executor uh, or uh, estate manager for his estate as well. And my mission is to make sure that everybody remembers who Ernie Kovacs and Edie Adams were. My mom was a preservationist. She saved videotape and audio and... uh, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing with this with book and, and everything else, Kovacs and ED related. Yeah, and it's it's kind of remarkable and fortunate that uh, you know, the family saves so much stuff. You know, I think of other people who are kind of names from roughly the same period. You know, I have a I have a DVD that has like pretty much all of Jack Parth that survived. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like five episodes of a nightly show for several years. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, you do get Richard Nixon playing piano, which is cool. But still, it kind of <laughs> makes you realize they just threw out a whole lot of stuff that might be interesting to see now. Um, and my mom, by the way, was on the Jack Parr show. She was the girl <laughs> singer and, and Merv Griffin was the boy singer. There you go. Uh, and there would be more of her. If NBC had saved more of Jack uh, Carr. I know. I hate hearing it. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to, I would have loved to see more of my mom on television before I was even thought of. <laughs> yeah. And it was just one of those things. I mean, we're sort of picking Jack Parr at random here, but you know, oh, it's yeah. one of those things you always heard the name and you can't, you basically can't see him. And Kovacs was a little bit the same way for me growing up in the 70s in that, you know, my parents would talk about the Nairobi trio or things like that. Uh, You know, just weird bits that stuck in their memory. Um, And, you know, did I have any reason to expect that I would ever get to see it? I don't think so. (laughs) Uh, And yet then that PBS series came along. So, uh, you know, in in the late 70s. Which I, I'm sure, you know, your mom had a lot to do with. Yeah. Uh, many, many, many people tell me that that was really where they learned about Kovacs, uh, was that 1977 uh, PBS uh, special. And yeah, it was my mom who, in 1964, heard from her uh, uh, one of Ernie's uh, crew saying that networks were throwing away Ernie's tapes or they were taping over them or they were using them as blank tapes. And my mom was the one in 1964 who decided, no, that can't happen. And she got a quit claim and bought everything. She went to every network and said, if it says Kovacs, I'll buy it. And that's the only reason it exists. Yeah. Okay. So it was just a special in the seventies. I kind of feel like there was a series of half hour shows maybe or something too. Yeah. Yeah, there were a couple of things. There was one called Kovacs Goes to College, which they put together for uh, like touring colleges. But the PBS specials were uh, a guy named um, John Lolas uh, put them together. And they were a series of shows that uh, I think, you know, opened up a lot of people's minds to what Ernie was doing when Saturday Night Live was just starting. So uh, I think it was a nice, you know, connection to that. And, And frankly, PBS was great with you know, they started uh, Monty Python in the Dallas market, and it right. went 
So there's a lot of great stuff that PBS has done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We, of course, I was a uh, big Python fan in that time, and there's there's a certain similarity in the in that this brought back to me. This new book that we'll get to your book in a minute. But anyway, there's there's a book, and it kind of reminded me. You know, there was a time that if we wanted to kind of f- express our fandom of these, you know, of a particular comedian or something like that. It's not like we could go buy the VHS tapes or the DVDs. Uh, so maybe it would turn up on TV as Kovacs did and as Python did. But also there were other things. I mean, it, there was the Kovacs album that you put out. But then also, I mean, this this book now that you've done, Ernie and Kovacs Land, I mean, there were a lot of things like that. I mean, when I couldn't really watch Python necessarily, maybe it wasn't on in my market or whatever, you know, they put out a number of books and they were similar to this in that they were just kind of scrapbooks of random things. I mean, the one on Monty Python and the Holy Grail has a full alternate script that's basically routines from the show fitted together. Mm. Uh, You know, not really a, a movie about king arthur the way they ended up making it and so this is kind of in that same vein of you know all sorts of oddball things that apparently you have hanging around the house yeah uh they were definitely things that were here uh but one thing i did want to mention about kovacs was we recently found uh 150 hours approximately of kovacs only audio and that is on transcription discs and there's some from television and some from radio. And so while Ernie was definitely a visual comedian, he was on radio a lot. And he had to, you know, there were times where Ernie was doing radio and television at the same time. So he was basically going from one gig to another every single day. So there's a lot of stuff that actually was very uh, non-visual, I'll say. Okay. But at the time, uh, but, but going back to the book, essentially, I just realized there's all this stuff uh, in my garage and in boxes that I thought was really cool stuff. And I just felt like it's a shame if I'm the only person that can see it. Um, there are definitely fans out there who want to see it. And maybe people who don't even know who Ernie Kovacs is, but has heard, have heard the name. And we did kind of put it together in a way that wasn't linear, very much like Ernie. Uh, <laughs> and we wanted to specifically kind of not, you know, from 1948 to 1950, he was in uh, writing for the Trentonian and then he did radio. And, you know, it wasn't like we wanted to make it uh, a very, it wasn't a memoir. It wasn't uh, something like that. We wanted to make it like a look into Ernie's brain. And so there's professional things, there's personal things, there's weird things like how he wanted his vinyl record collection to be set up in his house. And this is where the jazz section goes. And these are where the speakers go. And it was very meticulous. And I just thought those things were so interesting because it's a real glimpse of like who he was as a person, as well as being a a comedian. Yeah. And it was, it was fun for me to see, I mean, so many clips from old magazines. I mean, I knew he had written things that wound up in mad magazine. You never quite know how those things were written. Sometimes they would just, you know, take take somebody's script and then caricature them with it. There's some Bob and Ray things that are like that. Um, but then he wrote, you know, apparently wrote things directly for a lot of oddball magazines. It's not really clear what magazines they are, but I'm assuming, you know, kind of the true and Argosy type, uh, you know, men's magazines of the time. Yes. And yes. I don't know what all. 
you know, you tell me. Yeah. Uh, he did do a lot of those. Uh, and that's what was so fascinating too, is I would find these magazine articles and I'm like, you know, here's this, here's the thing that Ernie wrote that, you know, has never been repressed or republished. And it's something that was, you know, from the 1950s, maybe you, you know, I don't know, 40,000 circulation, 30, I don't know. And so I just thought all those things were really interesting, but yes, a lot of men's magazines, uh, a lot of outsider type things. Um, and he, he was always doing something. And and my mom said he was basically a terrible insomnia. And <laughs> when he did sleep, it was naps and it was a four hour, five hour thing at night. But otherwise he was working. And so whether it was writing or conceiving his shows or trying to <laughs> come up with the the radio show bits that he needed to do that day, he was always working. So this is really why I want to make sure this book came out. Yeah, well, it was just fun for me. I mean, it's made me conscious of what we've lost as the internet has taken over everything. You know, just the the tactileness of being in print. Um, there's there's something kind of cool about leafing through those pages in this book. Of course, I'm doing it in a PDF. Uh, you know, yeah. so so <laughs> what do I know about print? But. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, it's like, and there'll be like a Virgil Parch cartoon in the middle of an article or whatever. You know, some guy chasing, you know, a boss chasing his secretary with big boobs, you know, which apparently was the funniest thing in the 1950s in men's magazines. And uh, in Eisenhower, I think that was really outsider stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's just, it, it kind of conjures up a whole lost world that, you know, I'm certainly familiar with as having been a kid in a world where it was still in the background radiation of, of our lives. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's just, it really kind of conjures up that time that he came out of um, in the, in that, as I say, in like a tactile print way that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that we forget that basically it seems like pop culture started when the Beatles started for a lot of people. So Ernie was black and white. Uh, it was not rock and roll. Uh, there was a lot of different stuff going on. So it's really cool in a lot of ways to see this stuff. That's a bit of a lost era. I mean, whether it was life magazine or Saturday evening post or even playboy, uh, there was, that was an interesting time, uh, and publishing was different. So I think, you know, the cartoons aside, you could do a lot of great stories that Ernie did. I mean, he did historical humor pieces and, you know, where are you going to see that, uh, right. in these days? So it was great. It was a lot of fun to go through that. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's talk about, uh, so the book is called Ernie and Kovacs Land and it's you, Ben Modell, a name that will be familiar to people on this podcast. And I'm sorry, the third, uh, the third person responsible is Pat Thomas. Pat Thomas. Okay, so yeah. tell tell me about uh, how this came about and what each of you did. Yeah. Uh, well, essentially, because I have this archive, uh, I really, I kind of searched out Pat. Pat is a, uh, an author. He's a historian. He's written a bunch of different books and he's always into interesting projects. He's a reissue producer. He works with a lot of bands and a lot of obscure artists and a lot of well-known artists. Um, but essentially Pat kind of 
like took a look at this stuff and was like, there is so much here uh, that there's no way we can even go through every single box. But I think if, if we start, you know, paring this down a little bit and getting some of them scanned, I think, you know, there's a great publisher, uh, Fantagraphics, that might be interested. And we started scanning and we started putting together this idea. And Ben, who is our Kovacs and E.D. Adams archivist, as well as just being a great silent film accompanist and DVD uh, company, I guess you would be. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, ben did all the captioning. And the thing that Ben really brought to this was a real sense of precision. And no, 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 that was 1957 in uh, New York. That wasn't <laughs> 58 in Los Angeles or this network or whatever it was. So Ben was invaluable in helping to put together a context uh, for a lot of people, I think, with a lot of the captions. But, you know, we, we basically just tried to put together something that was different and something that was uh, not a biography. And a coffee table book type book was something we, we thought might work. Well, yeah, just maybe just uh, tell me, like, what are what are a few of the highlights for you in it? Because it's not always clear looking through it quite what something is. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, tell well, me tell me some that you like. I was very excited to see that we got Ron Mail from Sparks to write an essay. He's a big Ernie Kovacs fan, as well as his brother. Uh, Ann Magnuson wrote a great piece on uh, her take on Ernie and Edie in her renaissance in the 1970s. So it was great to be able to talk to people who were not uh, sort of, I mean, they were of the era, but not really of the era. You don't think of Sparks as being an Ernie Kovacs. Uh, right. <laughs> um, so that was great to know that there were musicians as well as comedians that were really into Ernie. So that was great. But and I really are, liked uh, in Ann Magnuson's piece where she's talking about how Ernie's no budget TV inspired the no budget TV that people were doing in that, you know, sort of public access era. Yeah. That, that you know, I think we had the same thing in Chicago, but in, in New York, you know, the sort of the, the downtown scene saw it as a natural place to go and play around with stuff. And at least five people would watch it somewhere. So <laughs> good enough. Yeah, for sure. Um, public television and uh, those things were, were real important in the 70s for people who were not uh, celebrities that were not going to be in, you know, mean streets or uh, anything else. Um, it was a Flip Wilson special, you know, yeah, <laughs> they weren't exactly. going to be on that. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah there was, I mean, th that's the context that it was great to have Anne bring to it was that she took inspiration from a lot of things that Ernie and my mom did. And it was great to see how as unpunk as Ernie and my mom were, that they were influencing <laughs> a lot of punks. I thought that was great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And and what else do you oh. like? Um, you know, the weird little things that I loved were everything from his oh. aqueduct uh, racing uh, horse racing card that we found to right. <laughs> weird things like, um, well, two things. One, we did find. Uh, something that was rumored and talked about, but had never been seen. There is the 10 pages that he wrote for a novel that he was writing when he passed away called Mildred Zabo. So we've included that. Um, and that's something no one has ever seen. We also discovered, we didn't put in this book, a whole other book that Ernie wrote called Please Excusa the Pencil. And <laughs> We're looking uh, to do something with that soon. 
but I mean, even weird things like his budgets for the Tonight Show or above the line or below the line costs and what Ernie was paid or what other people were paid. I thought that stuff was fascinating. Um, you just, you know, those are things that got dumped uh, along with tapes uh, in a purge. Who needs all this stuff? It's taking up space. Let's get rid of it. And luckily, my mom did not throw things away, and that's why it exists in 2023. So what got uh, Fantagraphics, which is mainly a publisher of comics, interested in doing an Ernie Kovacs book? Uh, it was an ace in the hole. Uh, Pat Tom, <laughs> who had known uh, the publisher, Gary um, Groff, uh, well, knew he was a Kovacs fan and sent it to him first. And he was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. I really would like to do something like this. And what's really crazy is that the more I think about it, you know, people like Drew Friedman or, um, uh, oh, I'm thinking, I'm blanking on his name, uh, not Daniel Klaus, but a bunch of comic book artists uh, were influenced by Kovacs or his weird stuff in Mad Magazine. So it almost makes, a, it, there's a through line from what Ernie was doing in the fifties to adult or, you know, not adult comics, not triple X comics, but just grown up comics. Um, So it made actually a lot of sense when I, when I thought about it and uh, Drew Friedman is a huge fan and, you know, it was psyched to see how he wrote about it on his socials about how much he loved the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a, you know, there's just something about Ernie. I mean, he is the sort of, the secret cult that when you find out someone else belongs to it, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's exciting. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, my, my son had gotten into Oswald rabbit, the one that Disney had before Mickey mouse. Yeah. And we went to Disneyland and he, he found somehow, you know, we were amazed that they even bothered to make this, but like Oswald ears, like Mickey ears, you know, the cap that you could put on. And so he's walking around with that. And just every once in a while, another kid would see it and recognize what it was. And it was like, Ooh, you know, Oswald, (laughs) you know, and I kind of feel that way about Kovacs, you know, it's like, everybody's heard of Python, even if you're too young to have watched it. I mean, it's, kind of getting up there now but yeah. you know Kovacs is just a whole different thing I mean partly because he seems so out of out of pace with even the other entertainment of the time you know oh, yeah. there, there's just that sort of you know hipster absurdity about it that you know you're not getting from say Gary Moore or George right. Goble <laughs> or somebody you know so. and Ernie Ernie never fell out of his pants Right. Uh, uh, no, you know, what's interesting about Ernie is that, you know, he was not a stand up comic. He didn't do that. He didn't, he wasn't a Borscht Bell comedian. He wasn't Gary Moore. He wasn't uh, Jack Carter. He wasn't Henny Youngman. He didn't go, there's no Borscht Belt for him. So the thing that's really interesting about Ernie and why he is called television's original genius is. How did he know that these visual gags would work? Because he'd never done them before. Everything that he did that he's sort of known for are not things that he really did prior. And unless, you know, you're a fan of, of silent film or, or, or something like that, you really don't see the gags that Ernie kind of does anywhere else. And I think that that's kind of what blew people away was... You know, it wasn't, you know, radio with pictures. It right. wasn't 
sitcom. It wasn't, you know, the, you, you know, Ernie broke the fourth wall <laughs> to him. He wanted you in on the joke. And I think that that personal connection, because he always said to my mom, you know, you're going into people's living rooms. They're, you know, in their boxers and their you know, <laughs> yeah. t-shirts and like, you need to have a personal connection to them. And that's the thing. Ernie was never a ratings guy. He didn't get great ratings, but he had a fan base. And no matter if CBS didn't want him, NBC did. If NBC didn't want him, Dumont wanted him. So he brought a lot of press and he brought a lot of interest. So I think people had a personal connection to Ernie that they didn't have with a lot of other entertainers. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I certainly think that's true with my own parents who, you know, would talk about him and the out there things he would do in a way that they didn't talk about, you know, like you say, Jack Carter or Buddy Hackett or something. Oh, I remember Buddy Hackett one time said, you know, nobody did that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the one that I kind of, the the analogy that I kind of think of um, that maybe comes the closest to him in some ways is Tex Avery. You yeah, know, I mean, because he just loved playing with the fact that we're all sitting here watching moving drawings for seven minutes. Yeah. And, and that that's fundamentally odd. <laughs> and so, you know, why not have some fun with that? St- in You know, stick, st- draw a scratch or, you know, a hair into the film. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So someone can pull it out. That seems very Kovacsian to me. Uh, Tex Avery for sure. Andy Kaufman. Uh, yeah. Other one. And I think that those are the people that sort of they're they the, the conceit is uh, we're all going to sit here for 23 minutes and watch something and we're all going to pretend that it's real. And what we're doing is a real uh, event. And, and it, that's what it is. Those people were like, no, no, no. What we're watching is fake. This isn't real. This is just television. This is just a picture. This is just a television set. Like, and I think that that is what connected with a lot of people, especially in the 1950s, who were very much, you know, the good boy, the good girl uh, Americans that were just sort of like, yes, post uh, World War II, we we go along with things. Ernie did not go along with things. He right. was very anti-establishment in a time when there really wasn't a lot of anti-establishment. And yet the establishment seemed to indulge that pretty yeah. pretty well. I mean, he didn't get rich doing that kind of TV, and it usually got canceled. But they kept giving him shots at it. So, so you know, give the establishment credit for at least being willing to, to let him play around and see what came of it. Well, it's interesting because the famous story about that, uh, crystallizing that, that uh, conversation is – when basically he did the Eugene show and it was the silent show and it was a half an hour and there was sound, but there was no uh, talking. And the reason that show exists is because uh, Martin and Lewis had broken up and Jerry Lewis was the hottest commodity in the world. And television was said, we will do anything to get Jerry Lewis his own special. And they said, here's 90 minutes. And Jerry Lewis said, I only want to do 60 and no one wanted to follow Jerry Lewis with 30 minutes after that. <laughs> and they were desperate to find anyone. And Ernie said, I'll do it, but you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it, and that's what you're going to put on. And they did. And when that aired, nobody remembered the Jerry Lewis part. Right. Every, 
remembered Ernie. And that's, but the weird thing is that led him to the cover of Life magazine, which led him to his first movie with Columbia. And you, you never know how these things work. So being anti-establishment or maybe being not the, uh, the brightest, uh, shiniest object has its uh, privileges. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, did so people reacted to Ernie at the time. It's not that that just mystified everyone and it was discovered years later. You know what? You can actually read um, television reviews, uh, uh, television columnists writing reviews going like, what Like, what did I just see? I did not expect to, to see something like this. I think it was one of those moments where you just sort of go like, am I the only one watching this? Is it made just <laughs> right. for me? Um, and that's his, his genius is that he really did connect to people on a very personal level that again, I don't think <laughs> I love Jerry Lewis as much as the next guy, but I don't know if Jerry Lewis connected with people on a personal level. Right. <laughs> it's a little, a little terrifying. The thought of that. Exactly. <laughs> a little too much. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know what else other things in the book. What do you, what do you really like? Um, well, I just, what I found was that we, I'm not kidding you, we could make five books. There were so many pieces that we had to filter and sift through and go over. Um, You know, there's even things like that didn't make it in the book, like um, my mom and Ernie's uh, marquee at the Tropicana uh, Hotel in in Casino in Vegas in the 50s. They had a a Vegas stage act. Um, So... There's so much that we actually had to pull out that I was like, there actually is more. But in terms of what I did like that was in there, um, there's just weird uh, family photos. Uh, I really tried to make him human. And I tried to make uh, it seem like he wasn't just this. I mean, the funny thing is that Ernie Kovacs was 42 when he died or 43, maybe. And he was 42. He's going to be turned 43. Um, And. He looked like he was born fully formed. He, right. he he looked like he was six three forever, and he looked like he had the cigar. and And I really wanted to make sure that you know people knew that he had a family and he had a wife and kids, and he was a human being, um, not just this name or just this weird uh, icon. So I tried to include you know some family photos and some things that just like they said the record collection and things like that that I thought were really fun. Yeah, I thought it was funny. I mean, there's clips of him as a little kid, apparently yeah. being, uh, you know, enough of a fixture on the local scene that he wound up occasionally being covered in the local paper. Well, it's funny because that was because he had a wacky Hungarian mother who was obsessed with him and thought that he was the greatest thing that ever walked the face of the earth, oh. even as like a toddler. So. She was buying him ponies and she was, putting, <laughs> yeah, you know, he was anointing him as the amazing thing. And so she had to make sure that he was in the local papers. The society people needed to know about Ernie, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of like Orson Welles, you know, at age eight, he was a genius. The work would come later, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, the genius was already there. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's. It is fun. I mean, again, that just that way of like collecting, you know, the paper detritus of of the time, 
you know, it, it was it was very nostalgic for me. I mean, it felt like going through so many of those books I had in the seventies. Uh, you know, or you think of something like, you know, the lampoon things like the the uh, yeah. the yeah. year the yearbook parody and the Sunday newspaper parody that just captured an era so carefully. I mean, this this stuff really is from that era, but it all has that, you know. Covaxian absurdist uh, thing to it. So, well, and that's why we tried to do like we did put in uh, some writings and and some scripts, but it all has like his notes on it, or it's all done right. on draft, or it's done on you know that sort of not wax paper, but the paper that you used to use in the fifties. I can't remember for typewriters, um, but yeah, the, like the onion skin type, exactly onion skin. That's exactly yeah. Right. Um, there's things like that, that I just thought they're so weird and they're so, it's such of a different era that, you know, even if they're yellowed pages or whatever, I thought that's kind of what we're going for. You know, this is really, it's a different time. Like I said, pre Beatles, pre everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm also trying to look at some weird, uh, a couple things that, that we threw there that, uh, like there was a Fritos ad. Ernie for Fritos. Okay, sure. Why not? Paid probably paid enough. Sure, but like those are things that I'm like, how many people have seen an Ernie's Frito ad? No, right, not right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, no. I was just reading on Twitter somewhere. Someone was saying, you know, talking about how you know stars stars sell out to do ads all the time now. They didn't used to do that. It's like, oh man, you have not seen, you know, <laughs> magazines from the past when everybody's selling Chesterfield cigarettes. Oh, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, well, my mom's take on this was always like, you know, do you want to go to college? Because that's how you're getting to college. Like, you know, uh, Muriel cigars or Dutch masters. Uh, those were the people that paid the bills and, and, you know, the thing is that people forget it was another outlet for publicity. So my mom, even though she she loved the Dutch Masters and consolidated uh, cigar people uh, for Muriel, but it also provided her publicity for herself. So she was doing an interview or she was at an event. She could talk about anything she wanted to talk about that wasn't related to those things, too. But it gave her the opportunity. So. In a weird way, you know, she she and Ernie both figured out that corporate America, not just uh, not just the terrible folks we think they are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we we pretty much covered it. Unless there's anything else that you want to get into. Um. No, I would just say you know feel free to check out ErnieKovacs.com or EdAdams.com, and you know we're on social media. And, you know, we always have events coming up. We have events in L.A. this weekend and we have events coming up on the West Coast, the East Coast. And hopefully we're going to go to London and and Budapest because Budapest needs to have a book release for Ernie because <laughs> Hungarians need to know more about Ernie. So we're doing a lot. I mean, do do people in England have any idea who he is or is that like mentioning Arthur Askey in America or something? <laughs> They they generally don't, um, and his shows weren't broadcast outside of the U.S. and Canada, so that would make sense. However, they would know him sometimes from movies like uh, Our Man in Havana uh, with Alec True. Guinness. Yeah, and so they'd know his television work. I mean, excuse me, his movie work, not his television work. Um, more than that, 
Um, but no, generally they really don't. But what's great about Fantagraphics is they have a worldwide book deal. So if we go to London or Budapest, they're able to get books to stores. So I'm very excited about that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, let me ask you about his movies. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the checks were very nice. Do you feel like there's, (laughs) there's a uh, particular standout in his movies? I don't feel like I've ever seen anything that I thought was that memorable. Uh, well, I like, I mean, as a, just as a film and I thought Ernie was just great in it, uh, is bell book and candle. Uh, sure. Yeah. That's a really good one. Um, and our man Havana, I think is a genuinely a great movie. I really do enjoy it. I mean, it's written so well, uh, Graham green. Um, but you know, there were a couple that were not maybe as great as they could be. I mean, here's the thing. Ernie, was happy to take the nice fat paycheck in California as opposed to the not so great uh, television paycheck in New York because he didn't have to work very much. And he could, there's a great photo we have in here of Ernie on the set in Columbia uh, at Columbia uh, studios where he's at a typewriter doing work while his shirt's off and he's kind of lounging around, but he's working. So he could get a lot of stuff done while there was downtime making movies. And I think Ernie saw it. He just saw it as like a potential, you know, windfall financially, but also like, well, I can get stuff done too. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and you know, you think about it. I mean, these movies are about as long as, you know, one, <laughs> one daytime program yeah. back in the day tended to be, or at least, you know, the Monday through Wednesday of your daytime program in one week. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm sure in a lot of ways that was, that seemed a very sweet deal to him. So. Yeah. I, and I, to he, the IRS. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, which I will, that's part of the story too. That's a, an interesting uh, part of the story as well. But uh yeah, he was in a very high tax bracket and didn't want to pay taxes and and just didn't. So yeah, that was that was a problem. That was a problem. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so yeah, I mean, what are the events like that you're doing in California? Uh, well, okay. So so Saturday we're doing an event at the UCLA Film and Television Archive um, at the Hammer Theater, and it's screening. And it's a conversation and Magnuson's going to be there. Pat Thomas and I uh, will be there uh, talking about it. And we're doing a book signing. Um, we're also going to be doing books in uh, book events in Portland uh, at Annie Bloom's Books on August 24th and in Seattle at Fanographics Books on the 26th. Um, but you know what? Honestly, the people that w- the, the places that are booking us are movie and television uh events not bookstores uh but what's interesting is that i talk to people and they're like no no no, we we we're just not doing as many in stores as we used to do after the pandemic and i was like well that doesn't make any sense uh, don't you want people in your bookstores <laughs> right yeah uh, so i think it's mostly the film societies and television uh archives that are coming to us and and saying yeah we want to do this because it always helps to see ernie too this is Hobart Lipschultz, your friendly announcer. We uh, don't want to intrude into your living room, the privacy of your home. We just want to talk a little bit about a product we've got today that, well, friends, <laughs> I think you'll find it pretty necessary. Friends, eat food. Eat food three times a day, friends. Eat food morning, noon, and night. Food's good for you. <laughs> yes, friends. Food builds you up. 
It gives you all of the vitamins you can't get in vitamins. Friends, food is delicious. You can fry food. <laughs> you can boil food. And you can frickin' see it. Now, friends, you take a good piece of food and roast it. What's more delicious than roast food? Hmm? Nothing. And now, miss? Uh, yes, friends. Except no substitute. Buy food. That's right. Food is good for you. That's right. And remember, friends, one final thing about food. Spell it backwards and it's doof. <laughs> that was Ernie Kovacs and Edie Adams speaking on behalf of their sponsor, Food. Ernie and Kovacs Land, Writings, Drawings, and Photographs from Television's Original Genius by Josh Mills, Ben Modell, and Pat Thomas is out now from Fantagraphics. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Serge Bromberg and Josh Mills, and to Jeffrey Messino and Ben Modell. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks! <laughs>